Well, if you have a Bible with you, turn to Psalm 130. Psalm 130 in your Bibles this morning. We're going to look at Psalms 130 and 131 together, two short psalms. I really do think they go together despite the fact that they have different authors. You'll notice when we read this, they end the same way. Psalm 130 verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. And the end of Psalm 131 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. That might tell us they go together. We should remember that the book of Psalms, what we call the Psalter, was put together over time, but to get put together with some thought. These aren't in chronological order. These aren't in a chaotic, haphazard order. It's a little sometimes difficult to ascertain exactly what's going on in different sections of these 150 Psalms, but it's clear that there are some sections, like this section we're in. These are the Songs of Ascent. And you can see that there are also some sister psalms from, times, from time to time, like Psalm 42 and 43, which clearly go together and clearly got put together like that on purpose. Last week, we saw Psalms 127 and 128, which are great family psalms. And now we come to Psalms 130 to 131, and they also go together because they make up a progression. It seems like they make up a progression Let's read what it says. The first Psalm 130, it says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And then Psalm 131, a psalm of David, it says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I've calmed and quietened my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. That's God's word. Amen. Now, if Psalms 130 to 131 make up a progression then it might be good to make sure we see, right from the beginning of this message, where that progression goes, or how Psalm 131 ends, where this thing lands. The goal of these psalms is painted in this powerful picture in verse 2 of Psalm 131. We'll read it again. David says, I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Now, this is probably an obvious illustration to many in here. A child weaned, yet with its mother. Maybe you've weaned a child off breast milk in the last year, or two, or five, or ten. Maybe it doesn't take long. Maybe it'd take a long time to forget exactly what that looks like and how it goes. But for those who don't know, let me try to piece this together a little bit. A child not yet weaned often sits on mom's lap with 
a one-track mind. Milk, 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 milk. Right? It's like Pavlov's dog. The lap means dinner time. And so they get restless because milk is baby crack. It's crack for babies. I mean, you've seen them before they get to it, right? They're all shaky and, and then they latch on and... And then afterwards, well, they're all like this, right? They're milk drunk. It's milk crack, baby crack. They're addicted to it, rightly so. God's made them that way. And so a mom that needs to wean her child will begin to withhold some, back it off a bit, skip some feedings. It's tough. I'd be long going, but... A weaned child, on the other end of it, is a contented child. Even if the process wasn't easy, even if it's not what they would have preferred, now a weaned child sits on its mom's lap, and the lap is a place of comfort. It's a place of peace. It's serenity. It's, it's even relationship. Oh, how we need that in our lives today. A calmed and quieted spirit like a baby on its mother's lap, a weaned child on its mother's lap. How would you describe our brave new world these days? I think you'd agree some of these words are fitting, right? It's an age that's restless, agitated, busy, concerned, hurried, harried, uneasy, disquieted, noisy preoccupied, easily moved, easily agitated. Well, it's not the only way to describe our brave new world, but those are some of the ways to describe it. In Psalm 130, verse 2, I'm sorry, Psalm 31, verse 2, gives us a picture that couldn't be more of an opposite to the age that we live in, to the way many of us live. Those words, calmed and quieted, are perfect antonyms to our brave new world. Most of us don't even know that we need a calm and quiet heart. Most of us don't want a calm and quiet heart. Have you ever done a vacation that is purposely in the middle of nowhere? It's detached. It's not so much about activity. You do a jigsaw puzzle. It takes a while to get in that groove, doesn't it? Whenever we do that kind of vacation, I unpack, I put things where, it go, where they go, I get things settled, and then I, I pace. I don't know what to do. I just start walking around. and it, it takes a long time for me to sort of settle into this quiet and calmed, contented place. It's proof that we don't even know how much we need a calm and quiet heart. But how do we get there? How do we get to that place? Well, let me suggest that there are at least nine things involved from Psalm 130 to the end of Psalm 131 to get to a calmed and quieted soul like a weaned child with its mother. So let's back up. Psalm 130 begins at the other extreme, crying out from the depths. Nine things. The first is crying, the beginning of Psalm 130. Not crying like, wah, but crying out, and crying out 
from the depths, it says. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. The depths in the Psalms are a frequent metaphor for trouble. It can be trouble with enemies. It can be trouble with depression. It can be trouble with the Lord. It can be trouble with your own sin. It can be trouble with death on the horizon. But what it means when it says depths, it means trouble like water. Like it says in Psalm 69, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck, and I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. So that's what Psalm 130 means when it says, Out of the depths. It means water, neck high, or even higher. It means something miry below, some muck below, where there's nothing to to stick your leg on and push up. Like quicksand. And again, that could be enemies or depression or death or sin. And here it is sin in Psalm 130. The depths are clearly guilt. It's the pit of guilt that he finds himself in. You see in verse 2 it says, Hear my pleas for mercy. So it's clear the depths here are uh, trouble of sin and judgment. It's clear from verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Did you notice all of the O Lords in the first three verses? O Lord, O Lord. It's usually twice in one sentence here. And it's not just bad praying. Some of us pray like that. You know, Father, we just, Father, we just, Father, we just, you know, gets inserted every three words or something. But the psalmist isn't a bad prayer. He's instead just moved in his heart and utterly dependent on the Lord to help him in this trouble, in this trouble of guilt. So these are the first steps toward a childlike contentment, seeing ourselves aright, seeing sin and judgment not just as a problem and our reality, but seeing it as really our greatest problem. In this psalm, it's the depths. It's the pit. It's problem number one. And the psalmist is also calling out amidst that pit to God for help. He's calling out, crying out to him. And really crying out to him is another way of saying belief, faith. That's the second thing in our progression, believing Notice the turn from verse 3 to verse 4. In verse 3, oh Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? If you keep track of sin, who's possibly not in deep trouble? But with you there is forgiveness. What a marvelous turn. From From those depths of helpless trouble, of sin and judgment, to calling out on the Lord and then finding assurance of forgiveness. When he says, with you there is forgiveness, that is faith, that is belief, that is trust. In the New Testament, those words get a little bit more specific, narrowed in just a bit more. Well, actually a whole lot more. You see, in the Old Testament, there's faith in God generally to believe that that God is the God and he's our God. And there's also belief in that God 
forgiving, having mercy, fulfilling his covenant. But in the New Testament, this faith stuff, belief and trust, centers in Jesus. His coming, his living, his dying, and him being raised from the dead. Romans 4 makes this clear. It says that we can be counted righteous or considered righteous, we who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, him who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. We can be declared righteous, considered righteous, not because we are righteous, but because someone was righteous for us. That's now the true and only object of saving faith. Acts 4 says salvation is in no other name than in the name of Jesus. So there's no other way out of the depths. And there's no other legitimate path to real contentment than to know that our sins are buried in the depths of the sea and to know it not just because God is a forgiving God generally or nice or loving, but that he's demonstrated that love for us and accomplished that love for us in Jesus' death on our behalf. If you want to be like a contented child on its mother's lap, you must see Jesus as a savior greater than your greatest problem, your greatest problem being the pit of sin The third stage, though, would be fearing. Fearing. Look at verse 4. It says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. What a seemingly odd connection. Forgiveness, then fear. Doesn't it seem like it should read, with you there is forgiveness that you may be loved. Or with you there is forgiveness that you may be worshipped. Well, those are both true. But this verse says, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We talked about this a little bit last week from Psalm 128. Remember there? The happy man in the happy home, they're right with God, they're humble, and they fear the Lord. Fear the Lord was that key ingredient in Psalm 128, which makes all things different and right. And brings humility and trust. And so fear is not just dread. It's not terror. We said last week it's an undefinable mixture of fear and pleasure and joy and awe. It's complicated stuff, but it's wonderful stuff. John Owen, a Puritan, wrote 225 pages of small print just on verse 4. With you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. 225 verses on that. So it's no small thing. It is complicated indeed. It's wonderfully complicated and good. But what we should know and trust is that the fear of God goes hand in glove with forgiveness. It is a result of forgiveness. There's no contentment in him until we get him right. And when we get him right and see that he forgives with nothing less than his justice being met in the sacrifice of his son, I said last week, we tremble and we leap. They go together somehow. Fear of God 
goes also hand in hand with joy. That's why Jerry Bridges some years ago wrote a book, an excellent book called The Joy of Fearing the Lord. That's fear. There's also, fourthly, longing. The second half of this psalm, verses 5 through 8, tell us about longing. That's really what's meant when it talks about waiting. Verse 5 says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. Waiting here means longing. We probably think of waiting simply in terms of a time thing, a chronological thing, like you're waiting for your wife while she shops. You're just, you know, you're doing this. You're looking, right? There's a, eventually it will be done. It doesn't seem like it's going to come to pass, but it will. Right? It, it might be waiting for a big check to come. It might be waiting for a marriage to happen. And that's how we think of waiting. But the Hebrew word can also mean something like longing. Longing, wanting. Like Ron said earlier in the service, like a, like a wedding day as a bride awaits her groom, she's waiting. But not just waiting, pointing at her watch, she's also longing. So we just don't wait for God to do something, for wait, wait for God to bring something, but we long for him and we long for him himself. That's what waiting on him means, longing for him, not just longing for his stuff or a change of scenery. Waiting can also imply watching, being on the look. Waiting can suggest expectancy. You see all these concepts captured in that word picture of the watchman. And the rest of verse 6, My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Watchmen long for the morning. On the night watch, they long for the morning perhaps because uh, sleep will then come. You can't sleep on the watch. You have to stay awake. And maybe, you know, they're doing the toothpick snapping, eyelid propping thing. They can't stay awake. They just want morning to come. Perhaps they're longing for morning in part because of the danger of night. I mean, if you were a watchman and night is dark and you're trying to squint and see and you're the guy that's got to blow the, the horn if something goes wrong, boy, it would be a, a refreshing, comforting thing when the sun rises and your shift's done. You go, another one done. So they long for the morning. They watch for the morning as they long for it. And they can certainly expect that morning will come. It might feel like it's endless at 3.30 in the morning, but it will come. And so they watch. They wait. And part of waiting on the Lord is, is indeed this plain old unfun kind of waiting of actually not getting something now, but needing time before this happens. That is part of the equation. Who can doubt that the Lord's timing is often not our timing? Who can doubt that some prayer requests haven't been answered or didn't get answered right away? We need to know this. All prayer requests will get answered better than we prayed them at the coming of Jesus. At the coming of Jesus, all prayer requests will get answered and many better than we prayed him. Some won't come until his coming. And so there's waiting. 
And some prayer requests will not get answered today, but they might tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now. There's waiting. God's people are people who wait on him because he's in charge, because he's sovereign, because he's the Lord and we're not. But all of these different angles of waiting on the Lord have an important connection to God's word. Look at the middle of verse 5 here, the end of it. It says, in his word, I hope, a real similar word to the waiting word, hope. That through his word, we would find hope and encouragement. That that would be the place whereby our longing is, is met. That thirst is quenched. It's the place where we go looking while we're waiting. It's the place where we find expectancy while we're waiting. We go to his word. That's where we hope. Whatever else he may bring, whatever else he may do tomorrow or in eternity, we have his word. We use his word to wait and to watch and to hope. And we use his word to do Really, what happens in the last two verses of this psalm, recounting God's character and his promises. Verse 7 says, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there's steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. The psalmist here recounted what God has promised, who he is, what he does, what will come. He uses his word to do that. He uses his memory to do that. He recounts. It's part of waiting. Now we move to Psalm 131. Three verses. Spurgeon said it's one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. He also said it's a short ladder, yet one that rises to great height. It's there that we see the fifth element in this progression towards childlike contentment. Humbling. Humbling. Verse 1 says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. A heart lifted up would be a proud heart, a lofty heart, a haughty heart. Eyes that are raised too high are not those that look up. They're actually eyes that are high. We're high in our own estimation, and hence, on others, we look down. It's condescending, that kind of heart. But David amazingly says, my heart isn't lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Now, this is the kind of thing that you don't want to pray in public. In God's providence... God gave David a humble heart eventually. He learned some lessons in the school of fighting pride and getting humility. So David was allowed to sort of talk about humility and his own humility in a way that probably wouldn't work for us. In other words, for me to say, the best message on humility I've ever heard is is actually one that I preached. Right? It doesn't work. Or, I'm working on a new book, uh, Humility and How I Achieved It. (laughs) It doesn't work. And yet David kind of does something like that here. And in David doing something like that, and the Lord letting him do something like that here for us, we get a good window 
into that process of fighting pride and gaining humility, even if we wouldn't boast such words ourselves. It's what we want, a heart not lifted up, eyes that are not raised on high in looking down on others. Or as the second half of verse 1 says, a different angle to humility. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. What does that mean? Things too great, things too marvelous for me. Now that could have a theological aim. Not that it encourages simplicity in our thoughts of the Lord. Or that it gives a license for us to not give thought or precision about who God is, what he said, and what his word says. No, this is not encouraging uh, being what's called atheological, not theological, having no theology. But there is, a cer- there is certainly a point at which it's true for us to acknowledge that there's mystery about certain things in the Bible. Psalm 131 might be fitting for someone who, who just is restless that the Trinity is three and one. What do you mean? And you hand them a good thick book on the Trinity and they read it and they go, yeah, but still, three in one, what? And you say, well, it's three in essence and uh, three in person and one in essence. And they go, well, what's that mean, essence, person? Come on. At some point, we have to acknowledge there's mystery. There are good books and big books written on how God is three persons and there is just one God. There are good big books on it. And the good and best books on it all acknowledge there's mystery there. There's mystery about the origins of evil. We can't let logic lead us down a path that concludes more than the Bible gives us. Don't concern yourself with matters too great, too marvelous for you, or for me, or for any of us. You could also say that Psalm 131 might be speaking in part to those who well, need humility in their interpretation of any one passage, like their Bible reading, or maybe in a community group, or a Bible study with others. On the one hand, we should all be Bereans who search the scriptures on our own to test what the apostles' teaching is to see if it's true. But on the other hand, Psalm 131 may also have something to say to those who too quickly dismiss decades of learning from others or books because they look down, quickly read something, and feel like they got it. It could be they didn't get how complicated it is. So it could have a theological application, this second half of verse 1, but I don't think that's primarily what this verse is about. I think I think Psalm 131, verse 1, has more to do with an ungodly ambition versus godly trust in God's providence. This is very similar to what we saw in Psalm 127 last week. That there's a kind of building of the house and a kind of guarding of the city that's pure grit. It's all muscle. It's mere determination. It ignores the sovereignty of God and his power over us. It ignores the fact that there's a great and marvelous realm where we can't go, where we don't know, and what, where we can't affect. So Psalm 131, I think, is confronting 
It's contrasting. Those who think the possibilities are limitless. As long as we try hard, we give it our all, and we all get behind it. You hear this kind of junk from politicians at times, right? There's so much hubris. There's, there's no talk of if the Lord wills, we'll do such and such. It's, come on, America, we can do this. America has a great past, and we've put a guy in the moon. We were the first to do it. We can do anything we want. God in heaven laughs at the nations that say such things. Psalm 131 is confronting that. It's also confronting individuals who think that they're, they're only limited by their determination and their hard work and their gifts, which are going from good to great all the time. It's confronting those who think that they truly do set the agenda for their lives and no one else is their master. And soon everyone else will see what they already know to be true about themselves. Psalm 131 is confronting those who presumptuously insert themselves in higher and higher levels of stations in life. Now, there's nothing wrong with advancement. There's nothing wrong with swinging for the fences. But Psalm 131 gives us another angle. It's sort of like the Proverbs 25 angle. In Proverbs 25, it says, Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great, for it's better to be told, come up here, than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Some insert themselves into conversations they shouldn't. Some insert themselves into programs of education they shouldn't, perhaps. Or take on responsibilities that they shouldn't. We need a right view of ourselves. Romans 12.3, Paul says, No man should think more of himself than he ought. How much should we think of ourselves? Oh, on the one hand, we can think of ourselves wrongly, and then we're mousy and weak and timid. We do nothing strong or courageous for the Lord. But Psalm 131 is also confronting that lifted heart which looks down on others, doesn't view himself aright, driven by ungodly ambition, that sees no limitations of self, only others, and doesn't want to recognize God's sovereign determination over our station in life. In a word, Psalm 131 is confronting pride. And really, its ugly twin sister, insecurity. They look totally different. It's the same thing, though. One is confident self-sufficiency. The other one is non-confident self-sufficiency. C.J. Mahaney defines pride like this. Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. I think what David is saying in Psalm 131, verse 1, when he says, I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous, he's saying, I don't occupy myself with things I can't know, with things I can't control. You can't control people. You can't control their decisions. You can't control their hearts. You can't ultimately control job security or national security. You can't ultimately control tomorrow. 
when we try to control these things in the wrong way, we're ignoring God's economy. And we're pridefully and self-sufficiently concerning ourselves with things too great and too wonderful. It's not the pathway to a calmed and quieted spirit. I wonder if Paul in the New Testament had some of this in mind when he said, I want each one of you to be busy with your hands and live a quiet life. A quiet life? I mean, not public, not spectacular, not on the go, 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 go. Oh, we need a heart that's not lifted up. Eyes that are not raised too high. We need to be calmed, like verse 2 says. Look at, this is the sixth thing in our progression, calming. And the first half says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. We should stop there. Halfway through the verse for now. So that we don't miss the fact that David had a necessary part in getting or pursuing a calm and quieted spirit. It's active. It's not passive. He says, I have calmed and quieted my spirit. What's he doing here? He's preaching to himself. Remember that concept from Psalm 42? Talking to yourself. Talking truth to yourself confronting self about bad thinking, even bad feeling, and replacing bad thinking and bad feeling with truth. And recounting God's ways, reminding self of his promises, his character, what he's like. In short, David has been doing to himself what the psalmist called on Israel to do back in the psalm before in verse 7. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord for reasons why. With the Lord, there's steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel. David's doing that, has done that, apparently. As he writes Psalm 131, he's now comforted and quieted his soul. Oh, yes, there are plenty of verses about God doing the comforting and God doing the quieting, and we should pray that God would do it. We should pray for God's comfort. We should believe that God gives comfort and that we can't just muster it up in our own strength. But the Psalms also demonstrate over and over that we should pray for it and pursue it. We should wait for it while we work for it. They always go together. It's almost never comfort that you didn't wait for and you didn't work for. It just zapped. You just felt bad, and then poof, you felt good. And you think, well, that must have been the Lord. He just changed, he just turned the switch. No, usually he uses means, right? Usually you're in the Bible. You're rehearsing things to yourself. You're preaching yourself out of the miry clay from the depths to assurance and hope and joy and nearness and longing for him. That's where things are going. And yet in the rest of verse 2, we see that other dimension. Something that only God can do. That's the seventh thing. Accepting. Accepting. Let me tell you what I mean. He says in the second half of verse 2, I've been calm and quieted like a weaned child with its mother. Back to where we started from the beginning. 
Now, he says he calmed and quieted his soul in the first half of verse 2. In the second half, he's like a weaned child. And no child weans himself. No child says, well, I can't keep doing this. Someday I'm going to have to have a job. This will be embarrassing. Milk break. I mean, no, no child thinks through this, right? No child decides to wean itself. Neither do we. And David's saying that very thing here. He's saying the Lord has weaned him. God has weaned him from what? His pride. His self-sufficiency. All those things, those pursuits, all that kind of thinking that were there in verse 1. A heart that's lifted up has been weaned. Eyes that are raised too high has been weaned. An occupation with things too great and too marvelous has been weaned. That weaning process involves wanting and then denial or withdrawing and then hence restlessness. But eventually it results in acceptance. And not just acceptance like, well, well, right, but contentment. And not just contentment like, oh, I guess there's no other option. All right, I'm content. But trust. A weaned child is a trusting child. A weaned child is at peace and it's at ease. That thing which was once relentlessly craved and it was restlessly done without now brings about a new calm, a new quietness. That which was thought to be absolutely necessary and vital for life has now become an afterthought in the mom's goodness. It's now been replaced by better things. What is God in the process of weaning you from? Stuff? Stability? Security, wrong kind of love of people, fear of people, fear of losing their acceptance. Is God weaning you away from your ways? Maybe you're not getting your way in a bigger way than you haven't before, but it's new for you. Is it the Lord's weaning? Is it not a good thing? Can't he be trusted? Are you kicking and screaming as he tries to wean you? Or maybe it's a little bit better, a little further along the weaning process, and you're still just squirming a little bit. You're not kicking and screaming. It's not the tongue-shaking, jaw-moving kind of cry of an infant who wants more milk. It's, it's just uh, agitated. Do you wonder whether he really knows best for you? Is the Lord weaning you from you? Maybe you don't like yourself as much as you used to. That could be wrong. That can be good. The Lord can use either to get your eyes off of you. Listen to Psalm 131 played backwards. Remember those albums in the 70s and 80s? You'd play them backwards and there was a different message. 
Well, this isn't exactly like that, but David Paulison gives us the anti-Psalm 131. He says this, My heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. My eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So, of course, I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally. Like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Oh, isn't Psalm 131 a better psalm than the anti-Psalm 31? And yet there's still another layer here in verse 2. Not just acceptance with this weaned child. Not just contentment and trust and peace. But there's also enjoying going on. The eighth thing, enjoying. The end of verse 2, it says, Like a weaned child with its mother. That's how his soul is within him. Like a weaned child with its mother. The weaning process means denial and restlessness, then eventual acceptance and trust and contentment, but also enjoyment. A newfound, long-lasting enjoyment. There's relationship now. Mom is not just an apparatus. The lap does not just mean lunch. The lap is for holding. The lap is for comfort. It's not just for food, but it's for affection. So David tells us that God has weaned him from things that are too great and too wonderful for him. To lifted his heart, uh, rather not, lift, not let his heart be lifted. He's not let him get haughty eyes, but he's instead now comforted him and stilled him with his very presence. So David's telling us in such powerful terms, the Lord is all I need. The Lord is all I need. He is my hope. He is my longing. I watch for him. I wait for him. He's my portion, he says in other psalms. He's my everything. How about you? Is God's presence or his lap enough? Maybe you wonder what his lap is good for, if not to give you the things that you crave. Jonathan Edwards used to ask his church, my people, do you love God or do you love his gifts? If you wonder what the Lord's lap would be good for, if not to give you what you think you need right then, then let your two-year-old self counsel you in the Lord's ways. You're better off having been weaned. You're free. Fly. Enjoy it. Trust him. And enjoy him. Sit in peaceful trust and enjoyment uh, I can't help but think, I've asked myself this question this week as I prepared. Should I be surprised that at times I'm fitful and agitated and restless when the lap is seen only to meet 
my needs. And then otherwise, I just go and play about. Should we be surprised when we're discontented and disquieted and we never sit on his lap or in his word or commune with him and enjoy him? We need his word. Could it be that what keeps us from his word is not just busyness or lack of habit in reading it or not just because you're not a good reader is it possible that at times we don't go to the word and we're not in the habit of going to the word because of our pride do you see that connection here pride i mean if there are two different worlds going on and one is pride and self-sufficiency and the other one is the pursuit of humility and longing for his presence trusting him and hoping in his word, then I can't help but think that perhaps my self-sufficient pride is one way in which the Bible gets tossed aside. I'm fine today. I can do this day just fine without it. Oh, I don't say that out loud or think it in my head explicitly, but I, I have a feeling something's there. Isn't it a scary reality that we sometimes read the Bible or pray or give or go to church in order to obligate God to us? Have you ever done that? Something big's on the horizon. You want it. And so you walk with the nose a little cleaner than you used to. My people, do you love God or do you love his gifts? Tim Keller more gently puts it like this. If grace has really changed our hearts, we don't ultimately care if life goes the way we want it, as long as we have him. The joys of acclaim, wealth, and power are nothing compared to the eternal claim, wealth, and power we have in him. A weaned child is not just someone who knows this in principle, but has worked gospel truths into his or her soul as spiritually sensed realities. Internally, this quiets the soul into profound contentment and poise. The believer realizes that the reason God's actions are often opaque or distant or not seen is because, not because we're wise and he's foolish, but because he's too great and wonderful for us. When you can't see his hand, you can Trust his heart. And there's one more. There's one more verse left in this progression. In verse 3, we see the ninth thing here. It's inviting. Inviting. This humble, trusting joy and intimate fellowship with the Lord should always lead us in a desire to see others join with us in this glad experience, in this worldview that's incomparable. It should have an inviting impulse. So David writes at the end, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Just like Psalm 130 ended, Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there's steadfast love and plentiful redemption. Is this contentment so in you? Who cares what others think? You gotta shout it. Who cares what they will do? What can man do to us? God is for us, who can be against us? 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. So say it. Encourage it. Talk of it. Stir it up in yourself and in others. Where are you in this progression? Just look down on your notes. You've got nine themes there. Do you see one that stands out? Maybe something you're stuck on? Something you haven't moved past? Something you've refused to try to encounter? You know, from one angle, Psalms 130 to 131 show us that progression of moving from the depths of guilt and despair to forgiveness, acceptance, longing for him, waiting for him, searching his word, all the way to humility and childlike contentment and peace. But you know, from another angle, Psalms 130 to 131 as a whole are simply a snapshot of conversion, of what it means to become a Christian. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 18, when the disciples were debating about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus said, unless you become like children, you will by no means enter the kingdom. Unless you become like a weaned child, dare we say, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So in a sense, Psalms 130 to 131 are showing us simply what it means to come to Jesus and be forgiven. To come to him even for the first time is not just to cry out from the depths of sin in faith and find acceptance, but even crying out to him for the very first time for salvation means we hope in his word, the word of the gospel. We wait on him We know the results of that salvation are reconciliation. So there's longing for him. We want him, not just his gifts. In the gospel, we've been given a gift to look away from self and to look away from self-sufficiency, to look away from any any way of self-salvation. He's freed us in part from a haughty spirit. We've come to see that we're not the righteous but sinners who need repentance. And didn't Jesus say that as soon as we come to him, we will have partaken of living water that satisfies. He's bread that lasts forever. He's living bread. So he calms and he quiets us even in the gospel. And yet we're forgetful people. These matters are fundamental to Christianity. In some ways, you don't have any kind of Christianity, not true Christianity, without these things in Psalms 130 to 131, and yet they are learned more all the time. They are forgotten for a season or a day or a minute. They're energized again. He grows us in them to a new level. And the gospel is also our comfort for those seasons of dryness. There are seasons of Bible neglect. He died for those sins too. Those seasons of not liking the lap, but rather running away. Those seasons where we haven't quieted ourselves. We haven't fought to calm ourselves and be calmed by him. It's a fight, but he's in it. And we need him hourly. Daily. Let's pray and ask for his help.
Father, we ask for your help for us to see our need. We ask for your help to see you as a glorious Savior. You save and you save to the uttermost. You don't just forgive. You don't just remove sin. But Lord, you've given us your word and you've given us each other. You've given us your great promises. You've given us hope that even while we wait for you and long for you, long for more, you've given us so much and you've done so much. Lord, probably any good Christian in here today wishes they were less content with their pursuit of you. Wishes they would pursue you more. Every Christian in here, I suppose, Lord, would feel like their heart is not that low at all. Their eyes are often lofty. They don't even know what great and marvelous things they occupy themselves with and don't know that they do it. And we're often restless, not quieted. And yet, Lord, we can also say that not only you died for those sins, Jesus, but that you're near and you're good and you've been at work. I think we could say, if we're truly yours, my heart isn't lifted up like it used to be. There's some things that have been shed away. There are some ways in which I'm calmed and comforted. Last trial, I did better than the one before. Oh, Lord, may it continue. May, it, may you grow us in your ways. May others come to join with us in it. May we find ourselves needy. May we say daily that we need you. We need you every hour. We need you as we hope in you. May it be so from this time forth and forevermore, we pray. Amen.